Welcome to the Sports Field Management Podcast. I'm your host, John Kamita, Associate Publisher and Editorial Brand Director of Sports Field Management. This edition of the podcast is from an STMA conference education session on the topic of practical reductions in pesticides and fertilizers. The presenter, Ryan DeMay, is Sports Facilities Administrative Manager for the Columbus Recreation and Parks Department. We are excited to be able to bring to you content from STMA conference education sessions, as well as original interviews with industry insiders to help you meet the challenges you face. So with that, here's Ryan DeMay. You know, one of the things I first faced when I walked in the door uh, six years ago was you know, a lot of questions about what are you applying, how much are you applying, why are you applying that, and some, in some cases, the, oh, you're using that stuff, oh, that's not good. So I really wanted to kind of take a step back and look at the whole program, and in doing so, found a couple of things at the start of it that we wanted to talk about. So as I'm doing this, I actually got lost on a day, kind of like today is in Ohio. It's about 40 degrees and raining outside right now in Ohio. And so what I did was I watched some, some YouTube videos and got on these TED Talks. And there's a guy named Simon Sinek, pretty interesting fella that kind of has this whole golden circle deal. And it's really about, you know, people get caught up a lot in the how and the what. So, for instance, in our business, you know, if I tell my boss or somebody who doesn't know what they're doing, uh, you know, as far as turf goes, I'm going to go out with three-quarter inch tines with 648 and go at two-inch spacing on my fields. That means absolutely nothing to those people. They don't care right? That's just the how and what of what we do. But if I told him I was doing that to make the field safer, look better, do things like that, it's going to resonate a lot more. So I found that out pretty quickly, that we needed to kind of define what the why was. So the issues that we started looking at were this whole thing of integrated turf health. If I want to reduce fertilizers and if I want to reduce pesticides, it's not just IPM because there's a lot of different things that go into having a successful turf system that's built on, you know, all these things here. So we've got drainage. We've got irrigation and moisture management. We've got things that are bedrock things that we have to have in order to be able to make any adjustments further up the chain here. You know, we talk about pest management. We talk about fertilization. Those are things that I can adjust, but if I don't have good drainage, if I don't have good irrigation, none of that stuff's going to matter. If I can't mow the turf properly for the type of species it is. So we really took a look at this whole system that we had at all these different places and tried to put it in context of what we wanted to do and then how we were going to do it, but most importantly, why. So I put this all together, and then we talked as a group. We talked to people that were stakeholders in our organization, people that, again, don't have a background in turf. They just want the fields to look nice, play nice, be safe, right? So what is our why? You know, we, we started asking ourselves, how can we, you know, put something that's so subjective into an objective form? And so I kind of wrote this out just as something to spell out to anybody. This could be a council member. This could be a parks commission member. This could be, you know, Mrs. Jones, who lives out next to uh, one of our biggest parks, Whetstone Park, for instance, okay? So our goal, our goal was to have our natural grass fields provide our customers a dense, safe, and beautiful playing surface. The quality of our fields will be a primary reason why our customers choose to play at our facilities and keep coming back. In return for their loyalty, we will commit their resources and the support for our agronomic programs to deliver these conditions on a consistent basis. I'm going to tell you what, people stood up out of their chairs when they heard that. They didn't care about the 648 and the three-quarter inch tines and what fertilizers you're using, pesticides, all that kind of stuff. So it was really, really important to put it in this context for people to understand. Okay. 
So the meat and potatoes of it all. You know, when we start talking about integrated turf health management and trying to put this program and make the invisible visible, so to speak, you know, how do we take, again, something like turf management that is so subjective of how green is it, you know, should it be? You know, how soft or firm should the field play? Those are actually things that we can make, can take measurements on and make into objective forms to make these decisions. So we talked about these five things that were really, really important to build this whole program and kind of come up with how we could cut or reduce the amount of pesticides and fertilizers we're putting out there. So from building the program out from this standpoint, standards, thresholds, uh, understanding our control options, our monitor and measuring program, and then our decisions of what type of products we were going to use or methods we were going to use. So let's talk about how we begin with the benchmarking and the standards. You know, benchmarking really for us was going out and just sort of looking at all these different factors at each facility. You know, you have to really understand where you're starting. You know, you have to have a baseline. So, for instance, a field that, you know, is a high-use irrigated soccer field that we're putting down, you know, at that time somewhere in the neighborhood of four and a half to five pounds of N. Well, why are we doing that? Does it really need that amount of N to be successful? Is there other things that we can do within that whole triangle, that whole paradigm, of integrated turf health that we can do to reduce those numbers, okay? So we kind of baselined everything that we had out there and put it all pen to paper, okay? The biggest thing here was we had to establish thresholds. We had to say, okay, well, this field over here is good. We like the way that this looks. We like the way that it plays just, you know, without doing any type of measurements. And we got people that, again, don't have a background, don't have any, uh, you know, professional knowledge as far as what our field go fields are supposed to look like and play like, making some of these calls as far as what they liked, what they didn't like, and sort of use that to determine uh, how we went forward. So we talk about, you know, benchmarking and things like this. This is real simple. This is actually from Doug Soldat at University of Wisconsin, you know, talking about measuring whether it's uh, disease, uh, weeds, things like that. This is just a three-by-three, three, uh, it's a two-by-six uh, boards nailed together here. You have 100 squares. You count up how many you have weeds in, that's your percentage of weed population on that field. You do three, four different spots, uh, depending on how your standards are, how involved and how deep you want to get. But when we start making th standards and saying that, hey, we want to have no more than 15% weeds on our highest level fields, let's say, well, how are you going to measure that? So this is a really simple tool that you can use if you want to use it one time a year, if you want to use it two, three times a year. That's the level and the choices that you have to make, but these are real simple things that you can use to make decisions uh, later on down the road here as we get through this. So these are all the standards that we came up with. Um, you know, I didn't, I don't want to bore you with all the details of each one, but basically all these categories we have a standard for of how we're going to approach that. Philosophically, how are we going to approach this? And practically, what can we really do? You know, what kind of resources do we have, whether it be equipment, uh, the facility, maintenance facilities, um, personnel, that sort of thing. We talked about labor and where we needed to have certain people placed so we have the right people in the right place to do the right jobs, so on and so forth. Um, and this is one that we really focused on, too, was supports and strengths. Um, and we'll talk about this a little bit more from a, from a community aspect um, and what some of you might face, whether you're in Parks and Rec, uh, K-12 schools, universities, that sort of thing. But there are a lot of things that you can do as a sports turf manager to kind of help yourself and help your programs along as you go through this. Okay? So we asked, you know, kind of, again, the final question always was, what's best for the customer? What's the desired outcome we want for our customer? The athletes that are playing in that field, whether it be little leaguers up through high schoolers and depending on what you have there in your, in your communities and at your facilities. Okay? 
So from the standards aspect, this is a really good one uh, that I love. This is actually from Rebecca Autcher, who's actually presenting right now in the other room, actually right over there. Um, so she kind of came up with this for, for her uh, municipality, which is Cranberry Township, just that it's out of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So you can see everything's all spelled out. How often they're going to mow, the height they're going to mow at, cultivation, what they're going to do as far as tines, all this. Stuff. This is really a lot of the what and the how. But the good thing is, is that, they, you know, again, you're starting with that big picture of, hey, this is how we want the fields to look, and here's how we want them to play. These are the things that we need to do to get to that point. The great thing about these, and I don't care what facility you're at, I don't care if you're at a professional facility, all the way down to the volunteer Little League folks. Uh, you sit in a room and you agree on these with the people that pull the strings, whether it be the purse strings, your bosses that are doing your reviews, all that sort of thing, and when you agree on all these things. At that point, all the subjectivity of, well, what are you doing that for? What's this about? What's going on over here? That all goes out the window because now it is simply you're either below the standard, you're at the standard, or you're exceeding the standard. Everybody is in agreement, and there can be no, you know, no complaining, to put it nicely, about what is or isn't happening because we've all sat down and agreed on what those things were going to be. Okay, so... Moving along to understanding control options, and my, the big thing here um, that I want to go over, you know, with risk assessment and product selection, there's some really, really interesting stuff going on right now. So when we talk about risk assessment, this is for pesticides in particular. You know, the old method, these are some of the methods that have kind of come on um, here over the years. So the old school way is pounds on the ground. If I have a product uh, that I apply at five pounds per acre, and it is 10% active ingredient, I've applied half a pound of active ingredient. You add all those up over the course of acres or 1,000 square feet, and you've got your pounds on the ground. Well, some of the newer ways that have come out here, um, the San Francisco model here is really new. Uh, it's new within about the last six or seven years, and we'll talk a little bit about that. And then EIQ has been around since about 92, I want to say. Uh, it was developed at the University of Cornell, uh, Cornell University, I should say, um, with basically a way to take and, and quantify how uh, the risk of, an, of a pesticide's fate in the environment, okay? And so they tried to do that. There is some questions about how that moves forward here, uh, and we'll talk about that too in just a minute here. So this is the San Francisco model. They came out with this. Um, again, a lot of community pushback, um, especially on the West Coast, uh, as far as uh, pesticide use, the choices of products that were being used, and so on and so forth. So, so San Francisco kind of came up with a really interesting model where the big thing that I want you to look at here is this pesticide hazard tier. So this is something that the EPA uses when they test um, for uh, to you know, to uh, toxicity excuse me, to mammals, to fish, to wildlife, so on and so forth. Um, and so they kind of adapted it in a way that they were going to rank pesticides based on Tier 1, Tier 2, Tier 3. Tier 1 being the most hazardous, which we have a Tier 1 right down here with turny fungicide. Um, and then all the way up to a Tier 3 here, which is the least hazardous. So basically what you're going to find is a lot of the older products are going to fall in that Tier 1. Um, and they try not to spray any of those there in San Francisco. And it's a, kind of, it's a model that a lot of other communities in the West Coast have adopted. And so also here, uh, Tier 2, a lot of the products that we use fall into that Tier 2. Uh, here in turf, and specifically sports turf. Tier 3, um, we'll talk about some newer products here too that have come on, but a lot of these are going to be reduced risk uh, biopesticides, 
things like that. So uh, those aren't all created equal, though, and we'll look at that here with the EIQ in just a minute. So with EIQ, basically they come up with a number, and if you look at this field use EIQ, that's the number that gets calculated. So it's based on the active ingredient, the percent of active ingredient, and then your rate per application. Okay. So what they've done is kind of assigned a risk based on the consumer, uh, the worker, and then the ecological impact that each of these things might have, each of these active ingredients might have. And so the real number to look at there, like I said, is field use EIQ. When you're looking at this number, think of a scale of basically 1 to 30. Um, anything above an 8 is in, the, is in the area that would be considered risky or at least moderately risky. Um, anything above 12 is, is pretty harmful. That's going to be a lot of the old school stuff that doesn't exist on the market. Or um, is it such a high rate of active ingredient that it could potentially pollute the environment? So if you go over here and look, um, so this is aceloprin versus imidacloprid, probably the two most used uh, grub control products right now, uh, at least in my part of the country. So you look at field UCIQ, 1.7, so pretty much barely registering on the scale relative to imidacloprid. So when we talk about reducing pesticide you know, applications and things like that, you know, first we can just do the old pounds on the ground. We know we've got 20 fluid ounces of the acre here. The active ingredient percentages are roughly the same within about 3% of one another. But we're applying 12 fewer ounces. So from a pounds on the ground perspective, we're lower. We've reduced. From a field UCIQ and from a, from a uh, toxicity perspective, we've reduced as well. So there's a couple of ways of looking at that and saying that, okay, this is a better uh, choice to make right here with the acelaprine, right? Well, now let's look at some of the things that are going to come up when you start talking about this stuff with the stakeholders. Here's Merit at $6 an acre. Here's a celeprint at $122 an acre. Okay? So these are big things that, again, when you talk about philosophy and how you want to proceed, a lot of these newer technologies that are inherently safer, much, much safer, come with a cost. Okay? Now, some of those costs can be mitigated through the number of applications that you're doing and, and things like that, but Another thing I want to point out here, too, is uh, this is an EPA 25B. So the EPA actually has a list of certain natural ingredients that fall on this 25B list. Cedar oil is one of them. So these are natural, naturally occurring substances that the EPA has deemed there's no label needed for them as far as uh, you know, toxicity to humans or things like that. Biopesticide over here, this is the um, you know, same thing we talked about with like uh, the Bacillus thuringiensis uh, fungicide back there on the San Francisco model. But essentially here, you know, your costs are significantly higher than the $6 an acre rate, as you see right here. But then the other thing I want to want to point out too is your field UCIQ. Now, so there's a couple of things going on here is that cedar oil, what this is taking into account is that you're essentially applying a, a diluted oil. It's not, you know, the, a complete concentrate, but you're applying a diluted oil into a soil system that's going to probably do some damage to that soil biology. You know, some of the bugs and critters and things that live in that soil being coated with oil is not a good thing. So that kind of takes that into account. So you can see that here, here's an EPA 25B that the, that the government says is, is a limited risk pesticide. But here we see that there could be more damage done than what's realized based on, you know, making that choice. So that's just one thing I wanted to point it out. You know, you have traditional pesticide here. You have a 25B over here. But they're not, this one's not necessarily safer than this one. Okay. So when I talked about, you know, products and, and saving money and things like that, you know, this is a good example. I'm not endorsing Spectacle Flow at all, 
but I, I just want to point out kind of a couple of things here. First, can anybody tell me what the signal word is on this label? Caution, warning, danger? Trick question. It doesn't exist. Okay? In fact, the lethal dose 50, LD50, LD50 value on this is the same as table salt. Actually, a little bit higher. So you can ingest more of this than you could table salt and not, hopefully not, pass away. But, you know, the point, the, the point here is this product uh, is going to cost you roughly about $12.80 an ounce. Okay? My, God, my gosh, that's huge when you compare it to, you know, some of its competitors. You know, so, for instance, a way that we use this product and can justify its cost, you know, one, it's inherently safer. It doesn't even have a signal word. We know that it's a safer product to choose. But then the other thing is, if we were spraying, you know, normally in the, in the cool season areas, we're spraying this around uh, industrial vegetation control, like around fence lines, things like that. So uh, in, in, in order to use this product, you know, safely and effectively, it's going to use it, we're going to use it probably two times throughout the year versus spraying just straight Roundup with, uh, by itself, six or seven times, or Roundup in another uh, long-term uh, pre-emergent like this three or four times. So the labor savings that I'm gaining by spraying this, you know, as, as many as five or six less times is going to pay for the product for one. And then for two, I know that I'm using less of a safer product. Again, that whole pounds on the ground uh, paradigm, too. So when we talk about maintaining... You know, we talk about measurement and the decision-making process that we go through. So, you know, this is a, a really good one for white grubs, I mean, because it's kind of black and white once you start peeling back stuff. You know, the numbers per square foot, and, and this is determined by uh, a bunch of different studies. This one here is from University of Nebraska. Ohio State's done a ton of work on this stuff, a lot of stuff in the Midwest where we know that we don't need to spray if we have uh, mass Schaefer grubs below a rate of 8 Per square foot. So doing those counts and doing those flushes and things like that to uh, show you what you actually have as opposed to just going out there and uh, making a blanket application over an entire area. And you might find that certain areas, and this is something that we've done too as far as uh, you know, reducing the amount, the overall amount that we're applying is spot treatments. That's a huge, huge part of what we do now um, where instead of treating an entire field, we're treating hot spots that we know when we've measured to be above a threshold. So that's a really, really key component there. So when we do talk about the decision-making process, a couple of things that we want to kind of keep in, in mind here is uh, prevention. Um, you know, this is going to be, you know, the old disease triangle. You know, you've got host, pathogen, environment. You know, one thing that we can control uh, a lot or that have the most control over is the host. You know, we can choose uh, better seed varieties or better sod varieties to prevent certain diseases, certain uh, insects from attacking, that sort of thing. So that's a prevention technique that we can use, you know, early on and as we go through overseeding and as we go through interseeding and kind of keeping areas renovated throughout the year, uh, a decision that we'd ultimately make. You know, cultural, uh, there's, uh, there's somebody I know in this room actually right now that will make a good cultural decision because, uh, you know, a, a disease that affects us a lot in Ohio is summer patch. So summer patch, we know that we can spray preventatively with it with strobularins and things like that. But one thing that we can do culturally is make sure that our manganese levels are within spec for our soils. So that's a really, really key component. So one thing that I would do is I would soil test and make sure that those areas I knew were affected last year 
are going to receive uh, or have enough manganese to make it through the next year. Physical and mechanical, you know, we talk about this. This is more of like weeds, but the thing I always think about when I talk physical and mechanical, poanya. I mean, if you have a lot of fields like me, you're not going to walk it with a knife and do it. But if you have one field, let's say, or just a couple of fields, that's the best way, man, is just get out there with a knife and pick that stuff out. You can spray it till the cows come home, but physical removal is the best way. Biologicals, you know, there's been a lot of, of work here. There's some really promising stuff right now coming through um, on the insecticide stuff right now, specifically for grubs. Again, you know, the affordability of it uh, is still kind of out of whack from where uh, common pesticides are, so it would be something to sell in terms of, uh, you know, the cost, the added cost going along with it, but a lot of these things are too. And again, when it comes to cost, you know, you really can't look at it in terms of, oh, this costs more. You can just look at the product and say, well, this, you know, this product is $80 a gallon and this, dollar, this product over here is $60 a gallon. You know, a couple of things, you have to understand that the days of control that you're going to get out of that, for one. The number of times that you're going to have to apply it to gain control. And then lastly, for most of us, you know, budgets are important, dollars and cents are important, but it is a priority thing. And in communicating the priorities of why that product's important versus something else, is, that's what our job is to do with our stakeholders. So last one here, chemical. Obviously, we know we can go out and spray you know, pretty much anything out there with good success. We all know the products that work for us in that regard. So you know, it's kind of using that you know, in that IPM realm of the last resort of making a chemical application. And when we do, you know, trying only to hit those areas that we know are affected uh, as opposed to just a blanket app because you know, it's easy to fill the sprayer up and it's not that expensive. And, you know, all those things that you tell yourself of, I'm just going to go ahead and do it all. You know, I'm guilty of it too. But I know after going through this whole process that, you know, we, for years, you know, in, in, in my previous jobs and in my current job, you know, there were times that we were absolutely over-applying as far as we didn't need to do an entire field to cure or, or uh, make a curative application for whatever pest that we were facing. So kind of getting back into fertilizer here. So this is something, this is a group, uh, nutrient, on su nutrient sewer ship, that it's put out these four R's uh, for fertility. Has anybody seen this? out in the marketplace at all. I know turf has sort of been slow to, to bring this on, but it's huge right now in the ag sector. Um, and, and it really kind of hits on all the notes that are important for us just as well as ag. So uh, right source, right rate, right time, right place. So if you look and you see here, you know, we've got a couple of different things um, to move through and go on. So on the sourcing, you know, uh, you know, slow release, fast release, are we going to use an organic, are we going to use an all mineral, are we going to, you know, what are all these decisions and choices that we have to make? Because there's so many different fertilizers out there in the market. So what's right for you and what's not? Well, you know, the answer lies somewhere in terms of, you know, what are you working with? You know, what is your primary uh, turf grass species or species that you're working with? Um, what time of year is it, which we'll talk about here in a minute, but we talk about sourcing you know, I think it's really, really important to understand your derivatives. You know, source of nutrients, they call it down here, plant nutrients derived from down here. Understand what all these are and how they're going to work within your soil and within your system. Um, because a lot of times, you know, there's ways, uh, and I'm not deriding any, you know, fertilizer companies, they have the lion's share of their businesses in the ag market. And so there, cost is a big, big motivator for buyers, and so they will use lower-grade derivatives, okay? 
some of that stuff transfers into the turf market. And so you'll get products that, you know, have a higher salt index, for example. Or you'll have products that, uh, you know, basically you, you, we'll have an organic product over here that's, you know, cut with, you know, additional mineral fertilizers that you might not know, might not know are in there unless you read the label closely. So it's really, really important to understand um, how these products are put together and be a discerning consumer, you know. Don't be afraid to ask questions of your reps. Don't be afraid to ask the tech reps from the fertilizer companies, you know. And one big thing, too, from a sourcing standpoint, you know, especially if you're at a larger facility, um, is, you know, we do a, we do a lot of custom blends. Um, and the reason we do that is because we do have some very site-specific conditions within our different locations, our different parks and things like that, that allow us to get more creative with not only the derivatives and how they're put together, but also our ratios of fertilizer uh, that we, so we put those things together. So something to consider if you're if you're at a larger facility and you, you have an idea of what you need, you know, talk to your reps and see uh, what those options are as far as the custom blending process. So compost has been a big thing for us. Um, we're fortunate to have uh, a local source. Uh, it's actually made by our, our city as an entity. Uh, and really, the, the big thing here with compost that I want to talk about is uh, carbon or nitrogen ratio. Do we have any compost users in the audience at all? No big compost users. Okay, well, here's what I can tell you as far as uh, the benefits to it. Uh, you know, obviously introducing um, anything with carbon in the soil is going to uh, drive soil health to a certain degree, just of soil health. There's plenty of carbon in the soil to support the plants that are there already, but it's the microflora as far as uh, bugs and critters and things like that that are in the soil is what you're feeding. So the real important thing here uh, that we talk about with composts is when we're selecting those things is that carbon or nitrogen ratio. So here's a good example of some things that are sold sort of with a compost uh, slant to, to them um, where you know we see a low carbon or nitrogen ratio. We really want to see that number of carbon or nitrogen ratio somewhere in the uh, probably 25 to maybe 15 range, something like that. And you can see here, the reason being, look at the total end that gets mineralized. So when we put that carbon down in four weeks' time at a temperature of 72 degrees, there's a lot of end getting introduced into the system here. And that's not what we want. We want a nice, slow, slow release off our end from our compost. So as we get here to that 16 to 1, uh, 17 to 1, all the way up to 27 to 1, that is a very balanced compost. That's what we'd like to see. So, uh, you know, again, from, for our standpoint and our point of view, um, we do count this in our fertilizer totals and things like that, but it does help us reduce greatly, you know, some of the things that we're, we're doing as far as inputs on fertilizer. Um, we've experimented with different rates. I know, uh, you know there's been a, a good bit of work at Ohio State that was done five and six and seven years ago that we used sort of as a basis to go off of. Uh, but again, if you have access to a local source, especially if you're uh, at a municipality or something like that, I, I would bet that there's probably some uh, locally available compost that might be worth looking at. Okay, right rate. So um, this is something that when we talk about, well, how much N are we putting down, right, or why? Well, I think the grass needs a bump. Looks like it's growing slow. Let's, let's just get it with a little shot of N. Well, somebody thought about this long and hard, harder and longer than I could ever think about it, okay? This gentleman's name is uh, Michael Woods. Uh, he's a PhD 
and runs the Asian Turf Grass Center. And so him and Larry Stoll at uh, Pace Turf in San Diego uh, kind of came up with what they call this growth potential model. They did this about six or seven years ago and have put it out. So what this does, the two drivers of all grass growth, doesn't matter if you have warm season, cool season, precipitation, ambient air temperature. It's the only thing that drives those things. Ambient air temperature is going to drive soil temperature, get roots going, all that kind of stuff. But those are the two main factors right there. So what they did is they took and modeled for both warm season and cool season and basically said, okay, here, you put in your location. We know what your average temperature is going to be month by month. We know what your rainfall is going to be month by month. Okay, We can then calculate the nitrogen use, the maximum use of nitrogen across your entire uh, growing season month by month right here. So this goes all the way across, all the way through December. It shows me right here, 3.2 pounds is what a cool season grass, highly managed cool season grass will use in Columbus, Ohio. That was mind-blowing when it came to starting to make these decisions about how to reduce and things like that because we had fields and properties that were well, well above that. So as we looked at this, we started looking at the individual months. Okay, well, we go into March, April, May, June. Oh, what's going on here in the summertime? And so those high temperatures were actually, in, in the summertime, are lowering our growth potential and our need and demand for nitrogen within the soil. So September and October here. So really interesting stuff that sort of made us kind of pull back and look differently at our, our, our total fertilization program for everything uh, across the board. So really, really enlightening stuff. At the end of this, I've got a link to this that you can go on and actually put your own city in there, and it will actually spit these numbers out for you in your specific location as well. So interesting stuff there when we started looking at growth potential model. So we talked about right rate. So this here is um, dry weight percentage if we were to do tissue testing. Anybody do tissue testing with their grass? Okay. So basically what they do is they you'd give them a... Ziploc bag full of grass clippings. Um, they'll take that to the lab. They'll dry it down, bake it, basically, and get the dry weight of all of your macronutrients right here. So you can see here, you know, don't look at the numbers so much, but just look at the ratio. So we've got, let's say here, half part right there. So basically, eight to one, eight to two to one, or eight to four to one. There you go. 814. So 814, if we were going to break that down as a fraction. Okay? So that's interesting because somebody said, well, what's the right ratio for a fertilizer? What would be the perfect ratio to give the grass just what it needs every single time you fertilize? Lots of people have actually asked that question. But the most recent one, and the one that was most telling, was this from Dr. Wayne Cussow at uh, University of Wisconsin. He did this back in 2012, where they took plots. This is Kentucky bluegrass. Took plots. And you remember, we talked about A to 1 to 2, right? So 8 parts nitrogen, one part, one part phosphorus, 2 parts potassium, right? That was our number that we said should be in the leaf. So what Dr. Kustow did here is you've got 4 parts nitrogen, no potassium, no phosphorus. Added in 1 part phosphorus. No phosphorus, added in 3 parts K. And then we've added a complete fertilizer here, 413. About as close as we're going to get to our ratio right there. Well, here's the interesting thing. He sampled these 
every every month as he, that he did this. In the soil, all soil tests were w- within a statistically insignificant number of one another, meaning that across the board they had the same nu- nutrient level when they started it. Now here's the interesting thing. Look at these. Nothing changes. Which means that there's more than enough phosphorus in the soil to do, for this to support the turf, and there's more than enough potassium in that soil to support the turf. Okay, So it's really, really interesting when you look at that and start questioning, okay, well, why are we putting down phosphorus? Why are we putting down potassium? And that's not to say that there's not a time and a place to do those practices, but just across the board, when we're above a certain level, when we soil test, we should know that, well, are we getting a response from what we're putting down? So interesting stuff again when we started digging through this. So a lot of this, you know, was all this disparate information that we sort of had to, like, catalog and bring together. Um, and as we kept going and di- diving deeper and kept asking, why, why this, why that, why are we applying this much, why are we doing it this way, so on and so forth, all these discoveries be- kept coming and coming and coming to where we could build something that actually worked, okay? So soil testing. Anybody do soil testing here? All right, some hands. We've only got some hands. People have woken up. That's good. All right, so for soil testing, you know, we're all looking at different values and things like that. We can test for miners. We can test for... Um, you know, percent-based saturations, if you're into that. We can test for soil level of variable nutrients, if you're into that. You know, there's different kind of ways to look at uh, reporting and interpreting results for turf. But it's a really, really important step because, again, if you go back to this and we know that we're above our sufficiency range on, let's say, phosphorus, okay? I go back here, well, I'm probably not going to apply phosphorus if I know I'm above my sufficiency range. Okay, so uh, there's a whole other topic of soil sampling and how to do it the right way and how it impacts results. That's a whole other deep dive that we don't have time to get into, but it is really important. And I encourage you, if you are soil sampling or thinking about it, to look up the right ways to do that. Okay, right time. So again, I'm, I'm in the you know, midsection of Ohio, so things might be a little bit different here for warm season, folks, um, depending on your location. But I want to talk real quick about... Again, just to have another discovery that helped us uh, really reduce, the, reduce our inputs on the fertilizer side. So this is cool season growth curve. Um, you know, for those of us that went through any type of turf education, you probably saw this and are having flashbacks uh, to study time. But basically, you know, looking at this fall time, you know, this has always been a time for cool season folks to focus in on what they called late season fertilization. The idea was is that as the grass begins to harden off, as the cool season grass begins to harden off, we pound it within to try and drive root growth while the, the top growth is slowing down. Seemed like a pretty good idea. There was some good work oh, 40 years ago by A.J. Powell in Kentucky that supported this, and then people sort of ran with it and kept it going. So the latest research now that's coming out of Wisconsin suggests that it's all, it's all a farce. You know, so what they did was they took and they made apps on September 15th, October 15th, November 15th. So why is it different? Well, what they found out was the way that the plant was taking up uh, nitrogen was actually through a process called mass flow. So mass flow is basically as the roots take water up to make the plant survive, N goes in with it. There's a couple other nutrients that go too, but... N is the primary one that goes in. Almost 85% of the N that goes into any, any uh, grass plant is going in through mass flow. Okay? 
So what they theorized and what they suspected was that there's an evapotranspiration rate. So as the demand for water inside the plant lessens as you go through September and October and November, we see a big decrease. So an uptake of nitrogen into the plant. So effectively what they saw, I'll kind of flip back here real quick, it was 88% lower what they made. So the app they made on 915, 88% more of that got into the plant than what did on November 15th. And I can tell you for years and years and years that I was in that November 15th camp. It was right before Thanksgiving. We did our big slug of nitrogen, and that was it. This blew my mind. You know, this was a game changer in terms of, you know, we basically took RN uh, that we were putting down for our, our late season apps and cut it in half and timed it out better. So the, the moral of the story there of what uh, Dr. Soldat and his group found, you know, no more than half a pound after the 30th of October, and this really applies to most of the Midwest. Uh, northeast might be a little bit further behind because uh, your temps are a little bit more moderate out there through that period. Uh, but a couple other things here. In heavy soil, so, you know, clay and loam-type soils, you know, just using a 50% slow release in that September-October time at a half a pound of N, uh, you're fine. That's that's all you really need to do. If you want to go all out, you can do uh, what the fine texture folks and the sandy soil folks are doing, uh, which is just spoon feeding a tenth of a pound at a time every two weeks. Uh, so there's two different approaches you can take there. You know, we've tried both, and I can tell you that the results are pretty much negligible from our part, uh, not scientifically measured, but just from a um, you know a looks perspective, a playability perspective. You know, finishing up the year and going into the next year. That makes a big difference. But we went from, you know, just over a pound of N that we put out at that time in that, that September to uh, November time frame down to half a pound. So huge, huge impact on uh, reduction in fertilizer. And so some things are site-specific and things like that. You've got to uh, make adjustments for fields that are still in play and whatnot. But really, really interesting work uh, that they did up there. So right place. So this is a big thing, um, you know, for us in Ohio. Uh, and I'll show you why in a minute, but you know, if you're in the Chesapeake Bay, or if you're in some of these really ecologically sensitive areas where uh, this is going to travel and move, you know, she's got the edge guard down right here, really important to keep that off of uh, paved and impervious surfaces. And again, just being mindful of that, of where that fertilizer ends up and where it could lead to. The reason here in Ohio uh, for us, this is Lake Erie. So you've got Cleveland right here. Toledo's up here, Detroit's right here. This is, uh, I think, three years ago now. So basically what's happened is uh, loads and loads of phosphorus have come down the main river that dumps into uh, Lake Erie from the northern part of Ohio. And this has come from farm fields. This has come from uh, a number of different sources other than agriculture and horticulture. But... I can tell you in Ohio from a political standpoint that farmers, uh, turf folks in that, in that realm have gotten, have borne the brunt of the, uh, the regulations and the proposed regulations and things like that. So this was a big deal because uh, Toledo over here was actually without drinking water. They could not pull water from Lake Erie to supply their drinking water for the city for like four or five days in the middle of summer. So this really, really erupted at that time. It started taking a hard look at how uh, point source pollution of fertilizer, in particular phosphorus fertilizer, could be uh, could be an issue going forward. So, 
again, kind of wrapping up there on the four R's there, right source, right rate, right time, right place. You know, you get those things in order for your facility and what you need to do, it's going to make a big, big difference in terms of how you apply, when you apply, what you apply. Those are all very, very big questions that you have to answer. And I could not find an easier way to pull all that stuff together to kind of wrap my head and wrap our collective heads around uh, our fertility program and making sure that everything was on point there. So, you know, the real deal. You know, what does this all come down to when you're talking about the, uh, you know, the reduction of pesticides and reduction of fertilizers? Well, we know this. You know, we can go through each one of these layers of our triangle here and make sure that everything is completely right or as, as good as we can, right? You know, unless you have, uh, you know, a brother that owns an excavation contractor or something like that that is going to come in there and regrade all your fields and fix all your drainage issues, you're probably going to live with what you have, you know. In certain ways up here, it gets more costly and more uh, intrusive to kind of fix some of these things as you go up. But we do have a lot more control, you know, day to day, month to month, year to year over pest management, fertilizer, uh, and aeration. Those are really, really big, important things. And those all sort of go into the service management piece and then renovation. But we do know, too, that there's weather, right? There's things that, that push and squeeze this thing so far together sometimes that it's hard. You know, and the best mowing program and the best pest management program aren't going to do it. Well, then throw in another one, another variable, is use, right? These facilities aren't built to be museums. They're built to be used, right? day in and day out, season in and season out. So it's up to us to be able to manage and kind of pull all these things together and make sure that we're delivering for our customers what we said, the why of why we're here, right? That's a really important. So leave you with this. My take-home message is, you know, you can only manage what you measure. We hear that a lot, but there is so much in turf that, you know, five years ago I would have said, oh, it's subjective. It's, you know, either it looks good or it doesn't. Well, you know, by asking yourself those tough questions of, you know, the how and the what, obviously, but the why. Why does it need to look that way, or what do we need to, why do we need to do it this certain way is really, really important. You know, uh, on the information and data side, what are you using to make decisions on the applications? There is so much out there to help you make good decisions now. And the tough part, and I will tell you this, in doing, all, in doing this work for three and four years now, it is so disparate. It's all over the place that you have to kind of go and gather it up. So it might be something that we work on in the future here is to kind of put together a toolkit that, brings all these resources together um, and sort of puts them in one place. So this approach will work uh, regardless of the level of the facility managed. So, you know, if you're um, at a professional facility, the degree of difficulty gets a little bit more challenging, um, and those gains are going to be a little bit smaller and a little bit slower, but you can absolutely do it at a professional facility, all the way down to, um, you know, parks and rec and, and anywhere in between. So... Um, be a positive voice, just like I was talking about with the city of Stoughton. They didn't come into it, you know, and have their heels dug in. That was a, I think that was a great starting point for them to kind of come off of. But again, you see this, um, you know, throughout the country that it's hyper-local. It is tiny towns, little villages. It's not the, the big cities of the world that are doing this. So you have to be prepared. You know, for us, now we get questions of, hey, why are you doing this? Or how, how have you reduced this? And well, we've already done that. You know, we're already ahead of where you want us to be. And the response is always, wow, oh, you guys have already done that, huh? Yeah, here's all the data, here's how we've done it. 
it's amazing how much people will want to work with you as you go through that. So, you know, the last thing I'll say is people don't buy what you do. They buy why you do it. And that's by Simon Sinek, the guy who created that golden circle. Thanks once again for listening to the Sports Field Management Podcast. Be sure to check back at sportsfieldmanagementonline.com slash podcast for future downloads. And, as always, you can find the latest articles, resources, and information in Sports Field Management Magazine, the official publication of the Sports Turf Managers Association.